In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. there and we are live ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the true life podcast we are here with an amazing man mr dan hawk from the uh, first nations planetary defense we've got some interesting ideas and maybe just some conversation we're going to chit chat about today right. dan hawk how are you today good morning or afternoon you are in the mountain zone i am in the hawaii so good afternoon to you how are you i'm doing great uh, it's glad to be i'm glad to be back on on the podcast with you today yeah, thank you very much. I um I've been doing a little bit of thinking about the world we live in, Dan, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. It's kind of a broad topic, so I'm going to throw it out here and just see what you have to say. What okay. do you think about the earth as a classroom? Well, I have to say that um you know, as as you know, I'm Native American, so I'm Oneida. Um the earth the earth is um it's a it's a it's our teacher for sure okay um it, it's where we live you know we we call this maybe let's say um a boat where we are all in so um we are all in this together so what what i would like to say about earth is that that what people don't understand is that uh, when you look at it as a web, right? So when you have you have many strands uh, uh, in in a web, and so when you harm one strand, you are actually harming the entire web. Um, so I, I look at it when we look at Earth in a way that it, everything everything is connected, and and we don't see it that way. E even you know even extending that to our orbital space, which I recently you know we, we you know have been doing along with you know going you know to the moon and mars an example with artemis but um everything is connected we need to see it that way and if we don't um then what happens is that you know we, we harmed a strand and it, and someone else gets harmed uh, uh because of it so that's how i see it yeah it's a great when I, when i think of a relationship i think of the word ship and if you're on a ship together you hurt one person you hurt the entire boat you know, I think it's a great metaphor to think about like that. I often well, wonder. Yeah, well, please. I was going to say, you know, being on submarines, it's, it's like that, right? Okay, so I served on two submarines, two fast tech submarines, uh, the USS Flying Fish and uh, Atlanta, the last one being SSN 712, which is 68 class submarine. Um, and so you can you, you have to realize that when you're underwater, uh, that anything can happen at any time. Everyone on that submarine is responsible for everybody else. We do something wrong, we can hurt somebody, we can kill some, we, we can, you know, the, whole, the entire submarine is at risk just by one person. So when you talk about ship, you know, and talk about submarine, right? <laughs> um, but um, it's true, you know, especially on a submarine. You, know, you, you, you have to rely on every, 
everybody else to do their share, to do their part. We look at the ship of Earth. They have, we all have to do our share, our part. And, and for some reason, it seems like a lot of people don't want to do their share. They don't want to do their part. Um, and, 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 and I see that especially today where they say, you know, let's leave it to the next generation. Let's leave it to the next generation. Um, and I recently, you know, we're just looking at, you know, the idea of, you know, the 25-year the rule for, for having, um, you know, satellites in space. It's okay to have something up there for 25 years. And it'll automatically somehow, you know, um, disintegrate or, you know, um, you know, deposit itself over the ocean and, and burn up. That 25 year rule was made because of people who like, oh, yeah, let's just, you know, just let's have 25 years in space for a spacecraft and, and 25 years from now, we won't be here to deal with the fallout of that. And so um, that's crazy thinking to think that way. But that's exactly what happened. You know, people say, well, let's make 25 years and things could be up in space for that long. And, and, and that that's okay. No, it's not okay. Because when you're done with your mission, you need to, you need to deorbit, you need to, you need to take care of the debris, anything in orbit, you know, this man-made that doesn't have a useful purpose. It's debris. It doesn't belong there. You need to get rid of it. Uh, so that's how I see it. But yeah. It's interesting. It seems to me some similarities between a ship in space and a submarine or a ship on the ocean is that on that ship, you would want to have shared sacrifice and shared goals. Thus you share the mission together and have a good outcome. Do you think that in my mind, it seems like some of the setbacks are probably it's gotta be money that's involved and it's gotta be the interest of different nation states that are competing against each other. Like what stops us from having the shared goals and the shared sacrifice to achieve a, a, a goal that's good for everybody. You know, okay, so, so look, look, look at space. Space yeah. is supposed to unite us as yeah. a, peop a world yep. people. That's what the Interna yeah. International Space Station has done. It's, it's taken countries together and we come together for a common goal. Research in space, as an example, we do the same thing, should and ought to do the same thing when we go to the moon and Mars. We should be there as a community of people. Right. No colonization thing when you talk about Native Americans, right? So it's about communities going to going to Mars and 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 then having, uh, um, you know, maybe a, a research capability there as an example. Um, so I'm not going to say outposts. I want to say that, but I, I'm not going to. Uh, so you know, research capability there, and so you know, space is supposed to unite us. And so when we look at it from the world coming back down, right? So. Um, what's happening on Earth that that prevents us from doing that, from from going to the moon and having all of the communities come together and participating as explorers, as an example? Um, and, and it seems that we have these, you know, these these problems on Earth where we want to go to war, we we want to fight each other. Um, and it could be over resources. It could be, um, you know, over, um, you know, ideology or, you know, um, religion. Um, and, and even in our own, you know, in America, you know, we find, you know, this cross the aisle kind of, of thinking, you know, you, you're not thinking like I'm thinking. And, and therefore, our, 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 our United States, we're, we're split. We're, we're a fractured nation. And so we need to figure out a way to come together. And uh, that, that's difficult to do. Um, you know, it's, you know, to change one's mind and to change one's heart, two different things. And yeah. so it's, it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. One thing I, I do see that has brought me a lot of joy and it, it allows me to do some deep thinking on is ever since we've begun to go into space, it seems it has allowed us to see the world differently, literally and figuratively. I remember I forgot what mission it was on, but they showed, and sometimes astronauts will talk about looking back and seeing the Earth from from out from out from outside of the planet, and so we're literally getting like a third person view of the world. And I think anyone who's willing to put themselves in that position, obviously, you're just doing it from a mental exercise. But if because we have a picture of what the Earth looks like now. That allows us to see our planet in a way we've never seen it before. And it, it, I want to liken it to everybody's probably had a friend that's been in a relationship that's not that good. And you as the outsider, you can see it. You're like, oh, gosh, this is never going to work. You guys are too similar. Or, you know, this person's not right for you. You guys are always fighting. But to the people in the relationship, they're so close they can't see it. So they stay and they fight and it gets worse. But to the outsider or the therapist, you can look at it and be like, this is not going to work for these reasons. 
I think the same thing is becoming possible with us being able to see the earth from another perspective. And that perspective is space. What do you, what do you think that that's crazy? Or do you think that's something that's going on or is that possible? Well, you know, they were the, we're the blue dot, right? Right. So, right. So, you know, you look at the, our, 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 the saying of Goldilocks, right? We're, we're in this Goldilocks zone. Um, and then I've, I had people come to me and they say, well, you know, Dan, look at this chart. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to convince me that, that climate change doesn't exist. So, so they're, they're going back like six billion years in, on the earth, right? And they have this line that goes from six billion years to today. And it goes down on an angle. And they say, see here, look, this is why there's no climate change. I'm going, look, you know, we live on earth. I mean, human beings did not live on earth six billion years ago, right? So, uh, uh, you know, the, the idea here is that when we look at how Earth is in the Goldilocks zone, right? So Earth will survive regardless of whether human right. beings are, are on it or not, right? So Earth is going to be fine. It'll take care of itself. It'll renew itself. It'll, 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 it'll put Band-Aids on its, and, on its cuts and wounds. Uh, but human beings being on Earth in this climate that we are um, accustomed to, right? Whether it's not being too hot or not being too cold, um, we are here now, right? So, but when the climate starts to change of earth, you know, we are on it and we have to figure out a way to live with whatever the climate is that earth provides us. And so that's, that is really the issue. It's not, you know, you know, how many millions of years ago, or, you know, um, uh, we weren't here. We you know, we weren't here when the dinosaurs were here. The point being is that, you know, we are here now. We have to live with what we are given as far as what Earth is going to be able to provide for us, and uh, and we have to accept it. So 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 the, the whole point there is: is technology, is the scientists, are the engineers, are we going to be able to, when we are thrown this curveball by our climate, are we going to have the technicians and the scientists being able to? to catch that curveball and, and to mitigate it, you know, are we going to be able to do that? And I think that that is the question that is going to be very difficult to answer. That That's how I see that. You had mentioned in a previous podcast that we have the technology to start making real difference, but yes. we don't seem to be applying it. What, what are some of those technologies? Well, um, I think, I think uh, right off the bat is, is the fact that we have the ability to, to mitigate climate change by sinking carbon, pyrogenic carbon. Uh, so if you look just at the Black Hills alone, right, mm -hmm. they have, uh, and I'll have to tell you, the USDA will not even tell you how many dead and down trees are in the Black Hills because mm -hmm. they don't know. They have so many trees down that they can't even get into the areas to be able to, to, to monitor how many trees are actually down. Uh, so you have the mountain pine beetle kill trees, you have um, the emerald ash borer, you have some other types of diseases, but you have 10 million trees that are dead and down in the Black Hills alone. Let's say 10 million, right? Okay, so um, what's happening to those trees? Those trees, they're, they're rotting, you know, they, you're, you know, they're going into methane and CO2, they're going into the atmosphere. Well, a few years ago, when I called to, to discuss, um, you know, having tribal governments coming in coming into the black hills to be able to take those dead and down trees and said we're not just going to give them to you you have to bid on them you know, we're not going to give a tree we're not going to give dead trees to indians we're not going to do it um and that's the usda right okay so but the point here is this if you take if you take dead and down right so a couple things are going to happen first of all it's a fire hazard so you're taking the dead trees you're turning them into 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 carbon and you're putting it in the ground Amazon Black Earth, the carbon is hundreds of years. It's, it stays and sequesters for 100 years. This, you know, for every one ton of carbon, you're, you're sequestering 3.6 tons of carbon dioxide. You know, so Amazon Earths are ancient technology that is sustainable agriculture. So you, you, take, you take the dead and down fuel, right? Um, and, and, you, and you supply it to carbon and you sequester it, you sink it, let's say on agricultural land, because we talk about that in a minute. Um, but the other part of that is you're removing fire fuel loading. So when you're talking about forest fires, right, and you're talking about, oh, look at all these forest fires, uh, it has a lot of fuel, right? So you're yeah. removing some of the fuel that would be, that would be, you know, from dead and down. 
Um, so you're removing some of that fuel loading, which is really important when it comes to climate change. Now, you know, in the past, we've seen um, some of our, we've seen people who are killed because of uh, forest fires. We have yeah. seen, we have seen cities and, 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 and communities um, evacuated and destroyed because, because of fires. Now, does it make sense to take something that's dead in a, a, a tree carbonize it, put it in the ground, create sustainable agriculture from it, and sink carbon, and then sequester the carbon dioxide in this, in, 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 this, in this process. Of course, it makes sense. And so why did the USDA say to tribal people that, you, you know, you have to pay for these trees? So I think there's a mindset there that just does not, it's, it's, it's not, oh my gosh, it, they're out to lunch. Let's, let's put it this way. So, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, that makes no sense. It's whether it's greed or whether it's just short sightedness or something else. I, I, I almost think we have to figure out like that's the bound. That's what we're up against. We're up against this machine that just can say no for the fact of saying no. There's no real rhyme or reason to it. Well, you know. Uh, maybe, maybe the, you know, the, the su supervisor of the, of the Black Hills was told in some way that, you know, you can't do this. And, you know, well, we have loggers out there, you know, maybe they want the dead trees, right? So maybe that's their, that maybe mm. that's their understanding that, Hey, wait a minute, we just can't just give you these trees. You know, these, we have loggers logging this, this land. We don't have tribal people logging the land. We right. have, we have other people logging the land other than you. And so um, I think that's where that comes from. I don't think it's necessarily a, 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 a um, uh, some type of derision uh, or, you know, something against tribal people. I think it's maybe their policy is not right. But then again, you know, policy is what's driving some of our problems. And so, you know, you know, here take industrial hemp as an example, we're still yeah. trying to deal with this industrial hemp issue, right? So, you know, consider this, if you grow industrial hemp and you turn it to, to ethanol, you have to have permits from the, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms industry and, and, the, and the treasury department because you're not allowed to make ethanol from, from industrial hemp. It, it, you, you have to have permits to do that. Um, but if you were to turn it into, let's say, ethylene, that's not a problem. But if you turn it into ethanol, it is a problem. And so, you know, we have some, we have some crazy laws that, are, that keep and prevent um, farmers, in this case, from actually planting industrial hemp to be able to support a clean, green fuel. Uh, and, but it, for some reason, you know, the, the um, America, right, they'll set these goals of green goals, yeah. but then they'll put up a barrier to prevent you from getting there. And so it just makes no sense to me whatsoever. In some cases, you know, it's just, just, just nuts. Yeah, it seems like we have established a set or a parameter to get us to where we need to go. But this is just my opinion. But I think what you see is big business step in and squash any sort of innovation or any sort of, you know, any sort of thing that would overturn the apple cart. You know, they have this long term setup where they're making tons of money. And why would you let this startup come in and, and overturn your apple cart when you have pre-existing foundation you have a profit stream and you have you know from farm to table or whatever it is you have it all set up and then here comes somebody new that's like oh we're gonna do this new thing like it seems to me that that's the way that the corporations grow now is just by buying the smaller corporations and that would explain why you have the goal set up and then all of a sudden there's a barrier it seems like a lobbyist comes in and just starts making some rules it, it, yeah. So, you know, this is this is exactly true. Mm -hmm. You have you have politicians that are taking special interest money and yeah. they're they're the ones that are, you know, it just recently come up. You're like, hey, you know, China's buying all this land in North Dakota and it's right next yeah. to an Air Force base or whatever, you know. And, and but, you know, they made the law. So right now in every administration, you know, you have farmers that are selling their land to foreigners. Right. Yep. Yep. You know, into Iran, into yep. China. And and they're going and the, and, and the politicians are like wow we can't do that well they're the ones who made the law you know yeah so it makes no sense that they're complaining about the law that they made that says hey we got Chinese people that are you know building you know uh, building this factory or you know whatnot next to a to an air force base they're the ones who made the law and so uh, it makes no sense to me 
that that uh, you know that they would make that kind of um, argument, saying that oh well, we need to do something. Well, you 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 made the law, and now you want to now you want to go back and change the law because your special interest money is used up, or you didn't get any of that special interest money, and somebody else did because that somebody got that special interest money that says, hey, it's a really good idea to sell all of our farmland to to foreigners. Let's do that. And here, oh by the way, my pocket is open. You just fill it up with some millions of dollars, and and I'll I'll agree to that, and then I will go ahead and I will. I will put my stamp of approval on that bill or whatever it is, right? And and that's how I think some of this comes to be. But somebody's not really thinking ahead. They're not thinking in the long run, um, you know. Because then who do you blame? Who do you blame for for China buying land? Is are you blaming the farmer for selling the land to China because they're offering more money? Are you blaming the farmer then for saying, hey? Are you really an American? You're selling land to China. Why are you doing that? Um, and and then of course, then you look at well, who's getting all the subsidies for that land now? Is uh, is China actually getting the subsidies for the farmers that were you know on that land? And they're still continuing to get the subsidies. And and so you know, um, I, I you have to wonder what are we doing sometimes? It just drives me crazy. No. Yeah, I don't think you're the only one it drives crazy. I think it drives the majority. You know what? This this is the very thing that should be uniting us is the fact that if you, regardless of what color you are, what race you are, if you get up and you go to work for a living, you're seeing your livelihood being stripped away from your children's future because of the 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 greed and the selfishness and the be it politicians or the boardrooms or the banking industry or or even the insurance companies. You know, it seems to me that, and it's not just happening here. I read a pretty good article yesterday that spoke about some of the farmers in the Netherlands, how who, while they have their problems with farming, this guy was talking about their land, that the major, one of the major reasons that the government's coming after them is because they want their land. That sounds a lot like what we were just talking about. Well, okay, so who who wants their land? Okay, so is it the government or is it foreign interests? Is it, you know, is it is it the government for a reason? Is it the government saying, "Hey, we want your right. land because we need to put up another dike or we need to put up another, right. you know, That's another different. another another form uh, of mitigation because we know with sea level rise and we know we're going to have to take this flooding and we're going to have we're going to have to do something with this." Is, is that the purpose? So what is the purpose, right? So, you know, um, when we when we talk about what's happening in the Netherlands, right? So we just talked about farmers a little bit, but yeah. the, the point being is that it, it, they're, the government has it wrong too, and the farmers also have it wrong. So here's how they have it wrong. Right. They're, they're considering climate change through the lens of reactive nitrogen and not through the lens of carbon, right? So if you're not, if you don't, if you're dealing with, with carbon climate change, the lens has to be carbon. It cannot be reactive nitrogen. So if you're if you're if you're taking pyrogenic carbon as an example and you're sinking it and you're creating sustainable agriculture from that. So carbon, right, plus water makes root sugar. So you know see you know so um, the, the carbon hydrogen oxygen chain of root sugar is there. So you carbon and water makes root sugar. Plants are cellulosic. Plants need sugar in order to grow. That's that's how they get their stalks. That's how they get their fruit, all of that. So if you put carbon in the ground, because they're probably carbon depleted, most likely, because that's why they're using more reactive nitrogen to be able to 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 offset that. So the point being is that if you reduce if you reduce your reactive nitrogen, uh, or or in the case you're you're adding uh, sustainable carbon and then you're reducing your reactive nitrogen. So what happens is that you're you're increasing your yield by 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 carbon and you're decreasing the amount of reactive nitrogen that you use in order to grow the plant. So you got NPK, which is NPK, which is your your macronutrient. So you need nitrogen, right? Yeah, you need you know uh, potassium and you need uh, phosphorus. So um, so you need those things. That's that's the macronutrients. But if you're if you're carbon depleted, you definitely need the same carbon and then reduce your reactive nitrogen. So it can be done. So what you don't want to do is you don't want to say, we're going to ban nitrogen because <laughs> that is not good. First of all, you really can't do that. But what you need to do is you need to set standards that, that and like Netherlands need to say, hey, you know what? Look, you have all these nitrogen fertilizer companies that are, are the ones most likely, they're the ones that are raising the flag that says, hey, look at what they're doing to us farmers. And, and so it's probably the nitrogen um, uh, companies, the, the fertilizer companies that are the ones that are leading the charge. But if you say to them, hey, look, you know what, if you, we reduce nitrogen, 
but we we also then allow you you be our our carbon guys you you are now you are now you are now saying to these 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 fertilizer companies hey you're not going to lose your job uh you still can be in business but you know what we're going to do you're going to be doing more carbon and less reactive nitrogen and so so we're not looking at you know yeah. throwing you out you know putting you on you know putting you underneath the bus and running you over a, a few times so but that's not the, <laughs> but that's not the case but they need to work together the farmers and the and, and 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 the fertilizer companies and the politicians because the politicians yeah. should not be making rules about carbon and climate change by using reactive nitrogen that's wrong can't do that so what they need to do is they need to come back to the table and say hey a farmer um, nitrogen fertilizer company uh, politician you get together around the table and say look you know what, we'll make a rule that says, you know, over a period of time, you, you sink carbon, you, re, you, you reduce your, your reactive nitrogen, and, 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 and the yields will most likely become, will be better, right? And so why would they be better? They'd be better because if you look at what Amazon Earth can do, right, their, their yields are higher. So you're going back to ancient technology, to, to native people, year, hundreds of years ago, you're using your technology to be able to create higher yields while also then using less nitrogen. But you have to have the three at the table, you know, the politician, the farmer, and the, you know, the fertilizer company say, what is, what can we do to work together to be able to do this so that we're not using the reactive nitrogen that, that is, is, is a cause of problem here. And so that is what, that's how they need to go about that. It's, it makes sense, but you know, if if you're if you if you're raising that flag, and you're in charge, it's difficult not to come back and say, "Oh, farmers, you know what? We yeah. got it wrong." You know, yeah. so now they have to step backwards and say, "You know what? Oh, you know, who should we listen to? Should we listen to that Dan Hawk guy? Look at look at <laughs> who, what does he know? You know, he, he's just a crazy old Indian, right?" <laughs> um, but but the but the point being is that we are just now starting climate change problems. And, and I mentioned before, you know, we're, we're, climate change is, is, is a 10-round boxing match, a boxing match, right? And we, we're not even in the ring yet. And we're already having these problems. And so we must come together now because, you know, uh, when we get into the, when we start that first round with climate change, we all have to be on the same page. And right, right now we are not. And, and it's problematic. It's really serious stuff. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, what I what I one thing I really like about what you just said is that you you kind of pull back the covers and you talk about the reality of it. It's climate change is so is so charged on so many sides. And sometimes when people hear the word climate change, they already have in their mind like the the one thing they know about it. And I think that people could really come together and and make the world better if we agreed on on what it is. And as I tie that to politicians and corporations, it seems to me that there, there's the majority of people that love the planet. I think most people love the planet and they want it to be better. However, it seems almost like a Trojan horse sometimes when you see corporations using the word climate change to, or foreign countries using the term climate change to take over farms, to come over and take over resources. I read a recent, uh, I read a recent, article that in Greece, I guess there was a large fire, a large forest fire. And because they didn't have the resources after such a tumultuous time, they had a private company come in and put out the fire for them. The private company said, look, we'll put out the fire for you, but we want to own all the carbon and all the resources in this forest once we put it out for you. And the people were kind of stuck because they were like, well, we got to get the fire out. And so they, they, they agreed to it. I'm probably butchering the, the article, but they agreed to it. And now it opened the door for private companies to come in and own all the, the carbon credits and, and exchange that. It just, it just set up for some nefarious ways. I, what I liked was the way that you were able to peel back the onion and show the, that there's a lot more to the argument than that. But can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the people hiding behind the term climate change that don't have the best interest in mind? Well, well, you know, I, somebody was arguing with me. Uh, you just like, hey, you know, I, I'm, 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 I'm an investor. You know, most likely an oil investor, right? Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, and then, true. and then he's like, you know, but I dabble in hoaxes, and I'm going like, 
What? Well, you know, so the point is, is he he's investing, he's investing with in, in in the oil industry, but then he's dabbling in these hoaxes that climate change is not real. And so, why would he do that? He would do that because he's trying to convince his clients that whatever he's selling is mm. is good, right? Yes, uh, and yeah. that's not that's absolutely insane. But it happens, it happens. So, you know, um, what you know, I, I had a I had a farmer, um, you know, kind of like you know, like not understand what I was talking about here about, you know, the Dust Bowl, right? So in the Dust Bowl, I don't know if we've had an opportunity to talk about this, but but the Dust Bowl is really something special, right? So this happened in the 1930s, right? Um, and um, a, a few things happened, you know, we, yeah, World War One happened and not a problem with the Dust Bowl. But the Homestead Act, right? The Homestead Act would basically just took you know, where the buffalo was grazing, where the buffalo was roaming and said, hey, you know what, you know, we have these farmers over here, we have Native American people, and you know what, we have 625,000 square miles of buffalo range. And what we're going to do is we're going to take that 625,000 square miles of buffalo range, and we're going to give it to farmers and you Indians, we're going to put you on reservation. Okay, so that's what happened with the Homestead Act. So what they did in the Homestead Act was they said, you know what, We'll give you this land. You pay ten dollars or the fee or whatever it is, and some agent got a little, you know, kick kickback from that. Um, so we're talking lots of acres. You know, yeah. I think it was like eighty acres, one hundred twenty acres, and then I think in the the Kincaid Act it went to six hundred twenty acres or something really, really big. Um, but the point being is that um, it, part of the act said that you had to improve the land in order to keep the land, in order to get the land, right? So what they had to do was they had to plow. And what they did was, and this is the part of the act. So what they did, they took the farmers and they plowed 625,000 square miles of buffalo, <laughs> buffalo range, right? And they did this for many years. Okay, this was during the World War One war effort. We need wheat. We need to supply our food to our, to our, 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 our you know, our, um, our allies, soldiers. Yeah, allies, to our soldiers. Farmers, we need you. You are you are on the front lines. You go out there and you plow, you plow, you plow, you plant, you plant, you plant. You get all this wheat, you get all this food, and you send. We send it because we're supporting the war effort, World War One. Okay. Native Americans were a part of that too, right? Um, but what happened is that I come to find out um, that after World War One, you know, we 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 had this period of time where 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 where, where Germany was having problems, and this is where the rise of Hitler was starting to come about. But what happened is that during all this plowing and harrowing and, and, and cultivating, that the, the, the farmers depleted the carbon. We had 90%, let's say 100%, we had 100% soil organic carbon at the time that the buffalo was on top of the land. At the time that the, the, the farmers were done plowing, right, uh, uh, doing what they did, and this huge dust bowl came about, right? We're talking about huge sandstorms, but they only had less than 10% of the soil organic carbon left. Soil organic carbon was basically completely depleted. You know, this was, you know, uh, work that was done in 1935 in Kansas City. So no carbon left, no carbon. You have water, a little bit of carbon. You're not going to get it. You're not going to grow anything, right? You have to have the root sugar to grow cellulosic plants, just, just the way it is. So you had this huge wasteland. Thousands of people died. Uh, you had, you know, people were, you know, breathing in electrified dust and they had dust pneumonia. Their lungs would actually fill, physically fill up with dust. Mm. They walk into the, they walk, if they could, they walk into a doctor and then the doctor says, hey, can't do anything for you. They open them up, their lungs are full of dust. Okay. Um, and then that's when the grapes of wrath was kind of written, you right. know, you, the, you know, the, the okay, so yeah. you had, you had, you had a million people displaced. But what people don't realize is that they had these huge sandstorms, huge. I mean, we're talking, they had airplanes at the time that were, you know, finding sand, you know, 16,000 feet in the air, right? And these wow. things were like miles long. And they had hundreds of kilovolts of lightning, you know, probably into the millions of volts of lightning. Um, after the sandstorm had passed, you'd, you'd see dead rabbits and birds everywhere. It would cover the lakes and the water and, and dead fish everywhere. Um, you know, electrified sand. Uh, you're, you're talking... These were these were huge coal fronts. The, the 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 you know they would fall in on each other, and this these these huge sandstorms would just be moving. You'd have a you'd have a change in temperature of forty degrees in less than thirty minutes. Um, wow. it, it, you it was it's significant, real significant between 1935 and 1936. 
every two weeks you had a sandstorm. We had a sandstorm that was so significant that it went all the way to Washington, D.C. We had sand that was in the Midwest on the decks of ships 300 miles out in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, this we're talking some serious stuff. Yeah. And then, and not only the time, but what at, at the time of 1938, uh, when um, the Long Island Express was forming off the coast of Africa, we were starting to have a cold front starting to appear in 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 the Dust Bowl range, right? So what eventually happened is, as the the hurricane started to go up the Atlantic coast. At the very time that it reached New York, um, the the sandstorms were in retrograde. They were going west. They literally took and sucked the the Long Island Express hurricane on shore. That should have gone should have gone northeast out to sea. So you know here you have this this climate change, localized climate change that was so severe that it was that it actually changed the course of a hurricane. So think about that. And in 1930, uh, 1937, I think was the Great Flood. Um, you know, so we had floods, we had great floods, we had huge sandstorms, we had you know people dying, we had the land was all destroyed. So what 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 got us out of that? You're going to say, okay, well Dan, you know that's all great. So how did we get out of the Dust Bowl? How do we do that? Well, it just happens to be that you had some smart people that that created the Soil Conservation Service and said, hey, look. We can't have farmers plowing anymore. That that's got to stop. So you know we got to create shelter belts. We have to buy the land that they're they're plowing. We have to get them out of here. You know we have to start planting trees. We have the we have the conservation corps. We need to, we need them to come in. We need to plant trees. We need to stop them from plowing. Um, you know um, it, there's a whole list of things that they did. The Soil Conservation Service came in there and they supported that. And World War II came along. And you have to realize that this overextension. Uh, of all this land, the 625,000 square uh, miles of land was all under banking. We need all this wheat. You need to support the war effort. Yeah. They overextended themselves. We had the stock market crash of 1929. Hitler over uh, in the Germany side said, hey, wait a minute now. He's telling people all about the Jewish question. He's telling everybody about the Jewish money. And they weren't listening to him up until the time that the stock market crashed. And all of a sudden he became the hero and everybody started listening to him and he rose to power in World War II, 75 million people dead later, right? So the, the point being is that um, the Soil Conservation Service was the hero in this. And they were able to say to the farmer, look, you know, what we did, we you can't do this anymore. We need to buy your. We need to buy your land. You can't do this. We're going to pay you for not planting. Uh, there's a whole series of things that they did, right, including the conservation corps. Um, and then, and, and then what? What the other part that saved us was the fact that World War II did happen. So you had these people that were in the conservation corps. They were already in this regime of, of being like being like military, they were able to go into the factories. They were able to go into war, and and we were no longer at the point of wanting to plow like we we had been before that so you took the farmers that were desperate they just left their farms they just got in their cars and they just left because they couldn't be there anymore they had no way of making a living and they just left they left their their mortgages they left their house they left they left their their, their equipment they left everything and they just left and and it, and it took the stock market and knocked it right down to nothing in in 1929 there were 200,000 tractors being made in 1932, there was only 19,000 tractors being made. So you have to understand that that that, that it was it's very serious stuff. Um, and when we talk about carbon climate change, uh, there's nothing to mess with. Uh, you we we have a lot we have a lot on, on our on our plate, and we're talking global this time. We're not talking about Midwest. We're talking global. That's a big deal. So I hope some of that made sense. Yeah, that made a lot of sense. Thanks for saying that. I've never heard the I've never heard it put like that before. And then when I as I'm listening to it, it makes me think that we don't thoroughly understand. I guess I should have known this. Most people do. We don't really understand what the heck we're doing. You know, if, if you pull all the wildlife off the land and then you just rake it over the coals, it, it's almost like you're raking yourself over the coals. You know what I mean? Because it goes back to what it's, you said in the beginning. Yeah, this the strand. Yeah, the yeah, strand web. Yeah, yeah. 
and then I mean, it would have been yeah. okay if they would have been okay if they would have said, you know, what we're going to have X, you know, X number of acres, you know, but six hundred and twenty-five thousand square acres, four hundred million. I mean, four hundred twenty-five. Excuse me, five six hundred twenty-five thousand square acres, four hundred million acres. Oh, oh it's no, not six. I'm sorry, six hundred twenty-five square miles, four hundred thousand square acres. So yeah, we're we're, we're it, it, it's all that's a lot. Let's put it this way: it's a lot. They, we, you know, all the way from Texas to Canada, uh, a lot of land, right? Yeah. You know what? I, I wonder if it it would be interesting to go back and do some research and see if, like, in the story you had spoke about the gigantic sandstorms that had pulled the hurricanes inland. It's almost as if that was the way the Earth was trying to bring water to it by creating the sandstorm and then pulling the water that way. It's weird to think of it as an ecosystem like that. Yeah, well, you know, it, in retrograde. Okay, so mm -hmm. it was going yeah. west, and typically that doesn't happen. And so if you if you look at what carbon does, so if you look at rain, right? So rain okay. is rain is what rain is water. You feel like oh, it's just water. Um, but if you take if you take a carbon molecule, and it, what happens is that the the moisture will cluster less around it and and so it's c you know it's carbon and it's um you know o, o4 h h8 right so so what you're having is this this carbon um particle where you have water that coalesces around it and that that's where rain comes from so when you're when we're breaking open that land and right and that carbon molecule goes up into the atmosphere as carbon dioxide now you got that carbon molecule for which rain can then you know your water can condense around it and and that's why you know we had the great flood of 1937 um so you know they, they had this 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 idea that if you that rain follows the plow um mm. in, in a certain sense it does up until the point to where you no longer have carbon anymore. Mm. So if you continue to keep breaking the land open and you got these carbon dioxide molecules going into the atmosphere, eventually you're not going to have any carbon left to do it. And then you get carbon depleted. So you no longer have the carbon in the soil to be able to, to grow anything because, you know, plants are cellulosic. Is that, is, is that same reason the flaw in the argument when people say, the more carbon, the better it is for the plant life. Like, how, how do those two things score? Sometimes I'll hear people say, "Look, man, we should have more carbon because plants breathe carbon, and it's better for the plants." It is, um, it is. And I did an experiment where I actually took a cactus, put it in a put it in a vacuum, um, and then I put it under water to make sure that the seal <laughs> would not break. And then I okay. put it in the refrigerator, and then I. I left it in the dark for 14 days and I put the light on for 14 days and I put it in the dark for 14 days in a vacuum underwater. So why would you do that? Okay. So <laughs> obviously, you know, we're, we're, I'm trying to mimic the, the, you know, the cycle of the moon. Right. Uh, but, but the point being is that it was in a vacuum. There was no, there was no carbon dioxide in the air, right. It was in a vacuum. Uh, where did it get its carbon? How was it being able to, to grow? How was it able to risk, to, to aspire and it was able to do that because of the carbon in the soil right mm. so if you were to take biology books and you rip them up and if you take them and you rip them up and you're saying well you have to have carbon dioxide in order for plants to grow um no no not really if you had it if we were living in a vacuum if, if if our earth was a vacuum and we had plants but they had carbon in the soil would they still be able to grow and yeah yeah they would be they may not be good but the point being is that they would be able to get some other nutrients that they need their ability to grow um although not efficient in a vacuum but the point being is it can happen so the biology books are not completely right but on the other hand um you know the higher the, the co2 what you're saying is the higher the co2 the greater the plants grow because because they have that ability to do that and that's 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 absolutely true um so that that is not um uh, like I'm saying, that, that that is true. You have to have the CO2 um, in, in a way that in our, in our Earth environment to be able to have something grow to its uh, to its highest yield. Yeah. Is when we look at the Earth, is it like I, I don't know? I'm just asking these questions. Is it? I've read a little bit about the Earth being a closed system. So if if indeed we begin to see places and even island places. Who's when the water level rises or the climate changes so drastically that it no longer becomes possible for people to grow plants? Does that all would that open up, like say for Greenland, for instance, or uh, would, would it make with the higher temperature change make life more livable in climates that are too cold to live now? What, 
you see what I'm saying? Like, wouldn't it recede to different areas, different parts of the planet warm up, different parts cool down? Is is that something we can look forward to in in climate change? Yes, I mean, not yeah, look forward you, to, but you're you're gonna you're gonna have winners and losers. You're right. gonna have you know it's just um you're right. The northern the northern territories are gonna fare better better than than the the southern territories. Yeah, uh, I, I I believe that you know we're seeing some real drastic situations now happening in Australia. Mm. Um, you know, so um, I think that we're gonna find um, that you know. The idea of climate change refugees is going to be going to be right front and center of us. You know, we're not going to be able to to um, to get away from that. I had some people saying, "Well, you know, I'm, we're worried about the border. We're worried about securing the border." And I'm going like, you know what? When we have climate change refugees at the border, you know, it's going to be too late. You know, you, if you're if you're talking about not wanting to understand or not mitigating or not thinking about how climate change is real, right? That when it comes to real people standing at your border wanting to come in because they can't live where they're at, um, that that it will be a significant issue. You know, you look at Bangladesh as an example. Mm. I would say in 2050 mm. that they're going to lose, you know, maybe 15% of their land. You're talking about 18 million people being displaced. Where are they going to go? Um, you know, where are they going to go? And so uh, you would you expect the 18 million people that maybe one or two might show up at the border? Uh, probably a lot more than that. <laughs> and so um, uh, what I'm saying is that we, um, we, we have a choice. We can say, if we think, if for those people who don't believe in climate change, if we think that there might be an opportunity here, that we think that there might be some kind of thing happening, that maybe climate change might be real, then um, maybe we should pay attention because if we don't, so what, what is the alternative if we don't pay attention to climate change? We could then see an influx of people coming into America that we will not be able to stop. Um, you know, so we, we can clamor about what's happening at the, you know, the Mexican border now. But when climate change really starts to happen, I don't think we're going to have, um, we're, we're not going to have the forces, we're not going to have the capability to withstand the influx of, of people that are going to be climate change refugees. It just, it just, I just can't see that happening, that we're going to be standing there with an AK-47 or an <laughs> M-16 and say, hey, you're not. And, it, and that's happening in China. That happens with China now, with people wanting to come in. To China that are on the borders and they don't, they don't have a problem shooting them. Um, so you know that's my opinion. You know, so I, I don't. But the point is, is yeah. that you know we're going to see climate change wars where people are going to be killed. They're going to be, um, you know, how would you say? Um, there's going to be oppression mm. from climate change. We're going to see a lot of oppression. Um, I mean, it's just uh, I don't know how we're going to prevent it. Yeah, it's it's quite a conundrum. I I often want on the topic of climate change. It seems like there are other if if we could just I don't know. It, it seems odd to me when I think about climate change how how money can fundamentally change the climate. One example is like the desalination plants you see in the Middle East. Like that's a pretty amazing phenomenon to be able to see these desalination plants come in and, you know, create booming cities in the middle of the desert. Now I'm sure it's not without drawbacks. I mean, I don't know where all the salt goes or if there's some sort of carbon that comes out of that. What's your take on desalination as far as a climate effective solution? I think we're going to need to look at that. Yeah. And the reason being is because I think our aquifers are, are taking mm. a beating. You know, how do you recharge an aquifer in a, in a, you know, like the Ogallala aquifer is an example. How do you recharge that once the water is depleted? So, you know, we, we can, you know, we're talking about laws, you know, farmers being able to, you know, to take as much water as they want. And, you know, eventually what happens is that when you have the reduction of water in an aquifer, as you reduce the water, what you're doing is you're, you're creating the concentrations of the unwanted chemicals in the bottom uh, of that of the aquifer so eventually over time as you get closer to the end of the aquifer's life what you have is heavily concentrated you know chemical water right could be all kinds of salts from the you know from uh from the caverns of the aquifer and the, the, you know the runoffs from the from the you know 
you know, from for, for farming and that kind of stuff. We we see some of that right now in the Salton Sea, right? So Salton yeah. Sea, I think, is yep. 242, I uh, remember, it's 242 feet below sea level or something like that. I mean, I'm just trying yeah. to remember remember some things, but it's, 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 it's where it drains in and it doesn't drain out. So, um, you know, there might've been a time when you had like Sonny Bono, like in his, yeah. his, 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 his watercraft and he's jet skiing, uh, you know, or whatever, you know, uh, that doesn't happen anymore. And the reason why that doesn't happen is because it become too salty. So it's, I think it's the last time I checked the salt to see it was like 25% more saltier than the ocean. Right. Uh, so you have this higher concentration of, uh, of salt in this sea. That's, that's a negative 200 feet below sea level, I believe. Um, and so you have the Imperial Valley where you have agricultural chemicals and pesticides and herbicides yep. are, where are they going where you know you know is it is it possible that they're going downhill to the salton sea um you know so um what i'm saying is that you know we have the ability to try to mitigate some of those things but on the other hand uh where do we go now when we have the salton sea which by the way was a, a freshwater flyway for you know let's say migratory birds that are no longer using the Salton Sea for migratory ways because they land and they say, hey, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, why am I floating so much? It's because, <laughs> it's because there's so much salt in it. And, and so you don't have fish, you don't have those things that were accustomed to that water because the water has changed and it could very well be, be just because of salt but it but also because of you know pesticides and herbicides that are flowing into um you know to the salt and sea so what do you need to do to clean that up how is it okay so well, the question might be like why should we clean it up or how should we clean it up and and so those questions need to be asked because uh you know uh isn't fresh water important you know and so when we get back to the aquifer for again and you talk about desalination plants uh, you 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 know for for California, if they have a desalination plant along the coast, are they not in need of that fresh water if they take the saline out of it? And consider a submarine, right? So yeah. you're you're a submarine guy, right? So where do you how do you get your water? Where do you drink your water from? And so you say, you know what? We if we we need water, we make our water. We we're on a submarine. You you don't come up for air, right? Yeah. Uh, we make our own air. Uh, we make our own water. And we make our own potable water. We we use, um, you know, we, we're able to use um, uh, salt water, seawater, and being able to split split it, and being able to take the brine out of it, and and create potable water from it. So it, it can happen. We can do it. It, it does it does exist. These these technologies. Um, it's it, it's energy intensive. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you know th those those things are you know uh, important to understand that you're using a lot of energy to get fresh water, uh, but we might have to do that. Um, and, you know, yeah, I look at some of these, these streams now where, you know, they're blocked off or dammed and by the time it gets to Mexico, right, there's, there's, there's nothing left to it anymore. Yep. Um, and so we have to realize that, you know, fresh water is a big deal. And, you know, we talk about from the Native American point of view, the reason why I think that we were placed on the international traffic and arms regulation list initially was because of, uh, no one wanted, <laughs> somebody did not want us to go into space to monitor our water rights. Okay, so I think water is going to be a huge um, problem uh, to deal with when we're talking about the face of climate change around the world. We're talking globally. Um, so, yeah, we, we need to we need to get fresh water, recharge our aquifers if we can. Yeah, it seems like there's been some politicians and corporations who thought maybe the way you recharge an aquifer is by putting oil in it. <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, obviously, you have enhanced oil recovery. You know, by using, let's say, um, you know, by by pressurizing carbon dioxide and using it as a as a sink for carbon yeah. capture sequestration, you you're, you're getting more oil outs. But when it comes to water, we're really in. Um, we're not paying attention because we. Right. First of all, so we write a blank check basically to farmers, right? So in yeah. Wisconsin, in Wisconsin, where I'm at, you have this right to farm state. 
which means that they can do just about anything. And we see in, in the Kiwani County as an example, where what they have, they have um, fractured bedrock that's, you know, like 200 feet below the surface, something like that. It's, it's called a karst bedrock in, in Kiwani County in, in Wisconsin. Uh, so what the farmers have done is they've used liquid manure and they, they put the liquid manure on, on the land. And so where does the liquid manure go? And the liquid manure goes down and goes down into the soil and goes through the fractured bedrock and into the water supply. And they do this again and again. They, they, they keep putting they keep putting the, the this this uh, liquid manure on their fields. And why can why do they do that? They do that because Wisconsin is a right to farm state that says they can. And so when you have the neighbor over there and they're opening up their tap and you're able to take a cigarette lighter and you're able to light it not kidding. Uh, they are able to light it because of the the gas that is in the well system, because the, because of the manure that is uh, eventually uh, making its way down into past the karst bedrock and into the the water table and the water supply. Um, so we have to pay attention, you know, to what we do as far as laws are concerned. So yeah, you have a right to farm state, but does that mean that farmers can allow, can be allowed to continue to place liquid manure on land when they know that the liquid manure is going into the water table, the water supply, and the neighbor next door can't do anything about it? That to me seems wrong, right? That, I mean, I, if I was a neighbor, I would be like, oh my God, you can't do that. Yeah. And so, well, it just happens to be that, you know, that that's the law. And so the law is wrong, you know, so that's yeah. all I can say is, you know, we need to make better laws. We need to have better, better, better positioning on how we deal with the environment. Uh, we should not be allowed to be able to, to contaminate wells uh, and water supplies and tables. And we should not be allowed to drain out our aquifers to the point to where they're not usable anymore. What are, what are we going to do when the aquifer, when the Ogallala aquifer, there's no water left? What are we going to, what are the farmers going to do when that happens? You know, are they going to sell the land then to China and say, hey, you know, hey, we got a great deal for you. We have this land here. <laughs> oh, but uh, we're out of, we're out of Ogallala water, um, aquifer water. So um, we can't, we can't, we can't do our crop circles anymore. Um, so what is going to happen when that happens? Uh, you know, does anybody ask the question? What are we going to do when the aquifer doesn't have any water left? How many people? How many people are asking the question? How many people care? Um, you know, that's that's how I see it. Yeah, well, that, that's a great question to ask, and I I'm hopeful that our conversation today will help other people ask that question. I uh, I think you got a kid to go watch here. We've been on for about an hour right now, and um, yeah. I uh, I want to say thanks, Dan. Like I I really. I enjoy our conversations. I get to see things a little bit different and from a different perspective from someone who's definitely got more knowledge and who has a much more experience than me. So thank you to me, from me and from my audience. Where can people find you? And is there anything else you want to leave us with? Well, um, yeah, I would like to say that, you know, when we, when we start to deal with climate change, I think that the Soil Conservation Service, when they were created in 1935, they did a good job. Um, we have the prescription. We have the ability. And it was, it was shown, it was demonstrated in 1935 that we can make a difference. Um, and I, I want to go back to the idea of the Conservation Service, the Conservation Corps. They, they created many, you know, road projects, dam projects. They, they created national parks they had you know uh different kinds of projects throughout the united states and that still exist today and so what i think has to happen in america is that we have to go back to these ideas of the conservation corps and say look we have this climate change problem what can we do what can we do bring some people and say you know what Maybe we need to create a dam. Maybe we need to create roads. Maybe we need to create, you know, yeah. um, new parks and those kinds of things. And come back and say, we have the people that have the ability to, to do what the Conservation Corps was able to do in the 1930s and, and then support America in a way that it, 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 it mm -hmm. enhances our mitigation of climate change. 
For example, you know, we had, um, you know, um, a, a forest fire in Colorado, right? Um, I forget the name of it, um, the Marshall Fire, I believe it was. And and so what, what if we had the Conservation Corps say, hey, you know what, we have this huge forest over here. We have all this dead and down trees, right? What if we were to ask the Conservation Corps, let, let's go clean that fire loading up. So if there's a forest fire, then we won't have that problem that we've had here like we had in the Marshall Fire. And so we have to look at things differently. And, and, we, and the other part of that is that they could also use something what we call natural capital um, or nat natural capital architectures to be able to say, we have this, uh, this thing that we call forest fire. And we have this city that's sitting right here. What do we need to do to that natural capital to help protect that city? It could be, it could be the way that maybe you know, a stream is mitigated or maybe uh, maybe how the uh, how um, you know the forest is rearranged or maybe how we use cattails and maybe uh, ponds as an example how we were able to do that so that we uh, a forest fire that may be approaching might be able to protect that city so use uh, natural natural capital as architecture to be able to find ways that we can support and uh, mitigate um, climate change as we go forward in you know the next hundred years. Those are great ideas, man. Yeah, that, that that checks all the boxes. It builds community. It sustains yep. the earth. It protects the environment. It brings people together. Those are great ideas, Dan. Thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that, you know, like I said, you know, the Conservation Service in 1935, they had a long, I mean, a list as long as my arm, a prescription of how they're able to get us out of the climate, out of the Dust Bowl. And I think we have to go back to that, you know, the, the 1930s and say, this is what happened. This is this is how they mitigated it. And I think we use those techniques that they use to um, to go forward in, in, in the year you know, 2022. It never ceases to amaze me that when we get stuck, all we need to do is look back to our ancestors for the solutions. It was serious. <laughs> yeah, it, it, yeah, right? it was a serious problem. And, and a dust bowl was very serious. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, in Washington, D.C., you know, when they they didn't realize how serious it was. Uh, and they had to actually hire photographers to go out to the Dust Bowl and take photographs. There's a huge collection of photography about about the Dust Bowl, and 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 it, it took those these these pro professional photographers to go out to the Dust Bowl to take this picture and then send them back to Washington so people could see it. And then they still didn't believe it, and they and they had to have. You know, legislators and that go out to the Dust Bowl to see for themselves, and um, it, in in order for them to realize. And it was happened. I think it was 1934, a huge dust storm, a huge dust storm. So this legislator, I forget what you know, he's a soil conservation guy that actually created this 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 these prescriptions, was in Washington D.C. at the time. And they had reports. They were going like, you know, they had national, they had weather bureau services. And they had this report flying over to, you know, to this guy in Washington that was about to go through this, 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 this idea of what, <laughs> what climate, what the Dust Bowl was all about. And, and, and it happened to be that they were able to delay it enough to delay that, that hearing just enough. So at the time that he was in the hearing talking about how bad it was, dust storm came upon Washington DC and just like made everything like dim and dark. There was like the, the sun was gone. Right? right. And they looked outside. It's like, Oh my gosh, you're right. Oh my. Oh. And, and you know, and so it takes, sometimes it takes miracles like yeah. that. And he was able, he was able to convince people to say what you're saying is, is true. And because I can see it now. And, and sometimes that's where we have to go is we have to, we have to get people to see it, right? It has yep. it has to affect them, and until it does, it's like no, it doesn't exist. No climate change is you know hoax and all that. It, just, it does not affect me. Uh, but until it does, then then um, when or when it does, then they say, okay, I understand now. Now I need to do something. But hopefully, it's not too late when that happens. Yeah, I agree. It's it's quite the conundrum right there. So. Well, yep. Dan, th again, thank you very much. I, I love it, man. And I look forward to talking to you on the first Tuesday next month. We'll do it again. All right. Sounds good. All right. Um, oh, and, and um, where can people find you at? If they wanted to track you down or, or read some of the things you've been reading, what, where can they find you at? Uh, United First Nations Planetary Defense. Uh, yeah, so UFNPDWordPress.com. Um,
Okay. All right, you got any speaking gigs coming up or anything? Um, actually, um, actually, I'll be in uh, England in the end of November, and then I'll be at the World Mining Congress uh, in twenty twenty three in in Australia. Um, and there, you know, we're looking at you know using industrial hemp for rocket fuel to mitigate mining uh, all around the world. So yeah, so we we plant hemp, um, you know, create rocket fuel from that to mitigate uh, some of the mine problems around the world. Um, so yeah, that's that's what we'll get a couple couple of things coming up. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it. Dan Hawk, he's a great man. He's doing good things. Get out there and support him. So we'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you, everybody. Aloha. Yes. Yes. All right. Aloha. All right. Oh, shoot. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.